If you didn't know it, we're having sound issues today. Um, the reason that the curtain is gone at part of it is it seemed to be dampening the sound in a weird way. And uh, now all of a sudden, when I breathe, you can hear me. So I'm not sure what's going on there. Maybe you don't hear. I heard. I've changed where we're going to study the Word of God today for several reasons that will become clear as I preach. Would you please turn to Psalm 11? Now, as we study this psalm, we have to remember who David is because it says that it is a psalm of David. For the choir director, a psalm of David. And let me make a note about it being... For the choir director, that means that it was to be sung. And as we study it, you'll realize that probably the the music that the choir director used for this song was not uh, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, How I Wonder What You Are, Up Above, you know. It wasn't something like... Because you have to have a text and a tune that are somewhat matched, right? And... uh, So it is intended to be sung, and it's helpful as you go through psalms like this to think, what kind of music would you write to go with this psalm? It is a psalm of David, and we need to remember who David is, because if you don't remember who David is, is, as I preach this morning, you'll be discouraged. David was a man who, among other things, was a murderer and an adulterer. He was a murderer while he was king. And so when we speak about the oppression of King Saul this morning, remember that David himself reproduced what he suffered under King Saul. Now, let's go ahead and read then this psalm, Psalm 11. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. For the choir director, a psalm of David, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee as a bird to your mountain, for behold... The wicked bend the bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. This is the word of the Lord. This is a psalm written by David, and it was written in the middle of a great moment of danger. That much is clear one of the great crises of David's life when evil men were trying their hardest to destroy him. It could have been written when Absalom was uh, chasing David out of the city after seducing the hearts of the people away from their true king, Absalom his son. But more likely, it was written during the time that David was under King Saul. And David was being oppressed by him. Uh, He was suffering the hatred of King Saul. King Saul was trying to kill David. And to David, it must have seemed at times as if the whole world had turned evil and there was no hope of truth or justice. A time when the rule of law, which is the foundation of a civil society, was dead. 
Now we can see the reasons for Saul's jealousy of David as they develop in 1 Samuel 18 and 19. In 1 Samuel 18, verse 13, it tells us, Therefore, Saul removed David from his presence and appointed him as his commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. So David had a task, and the task was to do the defense of his nation and was not spending time hanging out at the palace, but rather was going in and out before the people, great visibility, and taking care of the Philistines. First Samuel 18:16, a few verses later, but all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before them. Then a few verses later, verse 30, then the commanders of the Philistines, these were the enemies of Israel and Judah, then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, and so his name was highly esteemed. This is David. David is faithful to his people, faithful to the nation. He's going in and out. Everybody's watching him. And he grows in the admiration, the reverence, the respect of the people of his nation. And his name is highly esteemed. And so we can easily see the conflict developing here. Now, what was the result of this tension bubbling up between King Saul and this brave son of Jesse, his military leader named David? Well, in 1 Samuel 19, the next chapter, verse 1, it says, Now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. And so the king of the land decides that he is going to put David to death, and he commands his servants and his son to do the deed, to kill David. So this is likely the context for this psalm. David is being oppressed by the top civil authority, And he is fleeing before Saul's murderous wrath. And the psalm begins with a statement of faith, followed by a summary of the attack on this faith. Now, we don't know whether the attack on David's faith was internal from David's mind and heart or external from David's friends. My guess is it was both. It was both David's own mind and heart that said these things, but also probably his friends, maybe his wives. Verse 1, in the Lord I take refuge. So there is the statement of faith at the very beginning, and then the complaint. How can you say to my soul? Well, what is his heart and what are his friends saying to his soul? What they're saying to him is, flee! Flee as a bird to your mountain. He's saying, how can you say this to me? His heart's despair and the advice of his friends if taken, would be an act of unbelief. Now, they're probably thinking that they're helping him. They're probably thinking that to give him the counsel of, of, of fleeing is actually kindness to David. It will allow him to escape the murderous wrath of the king of the nation. Um, it will allow him to protect his life. Undoubtedly, they made a case also that it would protect his family. It would protect his wife. It would protect his children. And so their counsel is to flee. And it is unbelief which today causes us to flee from danger and take refuge in something other than God. David's friends were advising him not to trust in his own schemes or to trust in his own schemes rather than trusting in God. So it's his temptation to take matters into his own hands rather than trusting in God. 
flea is a bird. Now, how helpless are birds? Well, birds are completely helpless. The principal uh, ability a bird has is to beat its wings and to fly away. You know, if you blow on a bird, it collapses into a mess of bones and feathers. It's gone. It's ephemeral. And so they're telling him to flee as a bird. And where are they telling him to flee? To the mountains. Think of Osama bin Laden. The great empire of America comes after him. He goes to the mountains. And that's where David is being told to flee as a bird to the mountains. Think of David and his men hiding in the caves in the mountains. Now, why is David being told to fly away like a bird? What's the danger facing him? Well, in verse 2, we see it opened up a little bit. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. So many of you were out deer hunting yesterday. And it's not hard to understand what's going on here. There's a prey, in your case a deer, in this case David. And there is a way of getting your prey, and that is to take cover. Camouflage, deer stand. In this case, they're trying to kill David by shooting in darkness. In the Septuagint, it's translated um, in uh, in the cover of a moonless night, okay? So they're drawing a a bead. They're fixing their sights on you, David, from darkness, uh, hidden in the darkness of a moonless night. Now, what's the meaning of this? Well, the meaning is that David's enemies are not being forthright and honorable in opposing him, but rather they're using uh, darkness, trees, cover, camouflage. In a war, this would mean that you would take on the uh, uniform of your enemy. So you dress yourself up in an enemy uniform, go behind enemy lines, and then start shooting the enemy, making yourself to look like one of them. Civilian clothes, maybe, not the other, not the other uh, army's uniform, but civilian clothes. So the coward uses disguises and darkness and lies to hide his actions and to cover his hostile intent so that he won't be recognized as an enemy and therefore will better be able to carry out his love of violence and his bloodlust. Now, all of this condition is summed up in verse 3 by the statement, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So the head of the people of God has become the oppressor. He is the one with bloodlust. The man that is defending the nation is the one who is the the subject of his hatred and his bloodlust. And he's the king. The rule of law is gone, and he's using cover. You know, I'm the great protector of the people. I'm the civil authority. I'm the one that you're supposed to honor and obey. David, come play for me. Come play a tune, David. So David comes in, and the man that's supposed to protect them is what? Well, he shoots him. I'm the king. You can trust me. Come into my house. You're the military, the great military defender. We honor you. You know, Saul has killed his thousands. David has ten thousands. David, come in. We love you. The people love you. We all love you. And then he comes into Saul's presence. Saul takes his javelin and tries to kill David. Paul tells his son, Paul tells his ser- or Saul tells his servants to kill David, right? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, at different times in the Old Testament, God allowed his people to be overrun and their walled cities to be destroyed. 
And the first thing that needed to be done after the people were restored to the city and to their land was that they worked to rebuild the city's walls. And the job was hard, especially when the walls had been destroyed so completely that the destruction extended into the wall's foundations. We read of a case like this in Ezra, where we read that the Israelites returned to their land and they began to rebuild the walls. And it says in Ezra chapter 4, verse 12, And now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city. These are their opponents trying to get the king to shut it down. They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. So the foundation is the heart of a structure. The whole building gets its strength from that foundation. Generally, I think our homes have good foundations, but up in uh, Michigan, a number of years ago, Mary Lee's father bought a house where the family could have a reunion every summer, and it had actually two houses on the property, uh, uh, both made of wood, and one large and one tiny called the cottage, and the cottage had never had a foundation put under it. It had been built, and then later there had been a a concrete slab poured within the house, but the house didn't sit on the slab. And so if you looked up at the roof, the roof, you could see where the the beams were underneath the shingles because that was the highest point of the roof. So you'd have, you know, a beam here, and then the shingles would go like that sort of in a swing, you know, sinking down, and then the beam, and then sinking down. The whole house, year after year, was sinking into the sand because it was rotting, because it had no foundation. I'm happy to report to you that after many, many years of talking about what should be done with the cottage this last year, it was gone. It's gone. The cottage is gone. Why? Well, really, because it didn't have a foundation. Now, of course, we could study that statement for a long time, for an awful long time. Uh, Many of you are new to this church, and it's a culture shock to you, but it's really not a culture shock to you at all. What's happened is for the first time in your life, you've come into a church that has a foundation. And we're not content to talk to you about your relationship with Jesus. We're talking to you about every aspect of the foundation of your lives, and generally the foundation of men's and women's lives is their sexuality. I mean, you can't get more basic than that (laughs) on man. You're a woman. Right? When we're old, we're man and woman. When we're in the womb, we're man and woman. And you've gone to churches for years where it seemed that it didn't matter to anybody that there was a foundation of your existence that you were man or woman. And so you come in here and we start talking to you about being a woman, (laughs) about being a man. And you go, I didn't sign up for that. I signed up to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And we say, yeah, yeah, that's right. And that starts with you being man and woman. And you say, well, I've never heard that before. And we say, well, I'll tell you what. What we really want is your money and your body. And so let's forget the sexuality baloney, you know. Um, You're not man and woman. You're a person. And we won't ever talk to you about the foundation of your existence 
you'll just have it manipulated at every movie you go to and have you pressured at every class you sign up for and, and have it the subject of every poem that you ever read. And, and even your video games will appeal to you as men because you'll be shooting up bodies all the time with blood on the walls incommoding the passers-by. I have to quote Monty Python every sermon. And so you come into this church, and what happens is your ears have been desensitized to the religious aspects of your foundation of your life. And so you come in here and you go, wait a second, I wanted a personal relationship with Jesus. And we say, that's good. And the foundation of that is for you to relate to God as a man because you're a man. And you say, well, but how does that differ from woman? And we say, well, we don't want to talk about that because we want your money and we want your body. And you say, good, that's the church for me. But that's not what we do. What we do is we repair the foundation. We go back and start from scratch. If you've grown up in a home where your father or your stepfather has sexually abused you, we go back and we confront that man. Do you understand this? And then we talk to you about how you are pure and that God intended you for your husband and not your father. And you go, well, I just wanted a personal relationship with Jesus. And we say, no, no, no. We have to go back and name the evil and we have to clean it. We have to name it. We have to clean it in the name of Jesus Christ. You say, but I can't do that. It's too awful. And we say, no, no, no. We love you. Come on. We'll hold you up. Let's do it. And other people come and you've been divorced or you've divorced a wife. You've run off. Let's say that you refuse to support your family. You say, no, wait, it's your obligation to support your wife and your children. And you say, I just want a personal relationship with Jesus. We say, hey, you know what? That's how you have a personal relationship with Jesus. You know, where it says that the prayers of her husband aren't heard. Do you want your prayers heard? Well, then support your wife and love her. Because if you don't, the Bible says your prayers won't be heard. Well, I just want a personal relationship with Jesus. We say, okay, do you remember what we said five minutes ago? We're saying that again to you now. You have to be a man. Remember the Bible says that the man that doesn't provide for his own is worse than a pagan. So you need to provide for your own. Remember the Bible says that the man that doesn't work shall not eat. You say, I just want a personal relationship with Jesus. I say, okay, we won't talk to you about it because we want your money and body. What do you think the Bible means when it talks about shepherds who shear and eat their sheep? Is that, did you know the Bible talked about that? Yeah, it does. It talks about shepherds that are unfaithful, and instead of feeding their sheep, they shear them and they eat them. So, listen. It says, when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And the answer is, the righteous do what? The righteous rebuild the foundation. We're not content to take your money and your bodies. We want your foundation. We want you to have the concept of sexual purity and virginity restored to your heart. We want you to realize God did not mate man for man to mate with man, woman to woman to mate with woman. But we want you to understand that God 
intended the yin and yang of male and female to be together and to fight all their lives, but to keep it a lover's quarrel. And then the children will grow up in the whole black soil of husband and wife, father and mother fighting together. So that the wife will rub the rough edges off the husband and the husband will bring some order to the overactive estrogen of the wife. Now you can tell which side I'm on. (laughs) And I have a pretty manly wife. You're not insulted, are you? (laughs) She wants to know why everybody laughed. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Back to man, back to woman, back to children obeying the parents. We go to the children and we say, you are to submit to your parents. You are to honor them. And the, par- and the children say, I just want a relationship with Jesus. <laughs> and we say, children, honor your father and mother for this is pleasing to God. And you say, well, I just want a relationship with Jesus. We go to older children, and we say, bring your mother into your home and let her die in your home. And the older children say, now these are children in their 50s, they say, I just want a relationship with Jesus. And we say, wait, wait, wait. Jesus said that Corbin was to nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. Jesus illustrated the violation of the fifth commandment by talking about older children not caring for their parents in their old age, right? You say, I just want a relationship with Jesus. We say, no, no, no. We're going back to the foundations, and they must be restored. Because without the restoration of the foundations, there is no faith. There's no faith. You can talk about a relationship with Jesus all you want. There's no faith unless the people of God give themselves to honoring God at the most basic categories of our existence. Male, female, father, mother, son, daughter, grandmother, grandfather, provision, purity. Does this make sense? Can we all like clear out the cobwebs of our culture and realize that godliness starts with the foundations? And if our churches are refusing to acknowledge that there are such things as foundations, if our churches want to relate to us as persons instead of men and women, sons and daughters, husbands and wives, then what are our churches doing but shearing us and eating us? Think of missions. What do we want in the missionaries that we support? Foundations. We want missionaries who are sexually pure when they're on the field, don't we? We don't want them committing adultery. We don't want them abusing the people under their care, right? We don't want them simply living a high lifestyle in a very poor nation with no heart for the people around them, do we? We want them planting churches, don't we? We want them believing in the ministry of the proclamation of the word. So you go into missions, and instead of it just being a function of who you like and who you're related to, and that's how you decide who to give money to, you go back to the foundations and you say, the Bible says, go you into all the world preaching the gospel, 
Making disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Are you making disciples of all men? Are you teaching them to obey everything Jesus commanded? Are you baptizing them? And are you baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? That's where we start. Why? Because it's the foundation. Now, these are some things that are involved with the foundations. And what it says here is, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And isn't that a perfect description of us in 2008? All the foundations are being thrown up in the air. They're being destroyed. And so the question is, what can we do? From the beginning of this church, we have constantly in front of us had the question as leaders whether or not we were going to be committed to the foundations. Because we've known that we could grow a church in Bloomington very, very well and have a lot of money and have a lot of status if we would turn away from the foundations. I have said before, and I'll say it again today, you're not led by stupid idiots. Generally, people who are leading this church, men and women, the tightest two women and the men, are very bright. And they know our culture better than the people that have megachurches know it. They read more. They think better. We're not led by dummies. And so they know precisely how to posture this church in such a way as to get it to grow. They know what compromises can be done without people knowing that they've been compromised. They know how to take postures in such a way that people won't be on guard and will think that they're being led to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm being very serious because I think preaching should be serious. They know precisely how to seduce you to something slightly less than Christianity so that we can be slightly more than small and poor. But then every time you think of doing that, you think of standing before the throne of God and saying to him that you feared man instead of God and that you wanted to be a whore after wealth and after numbers. And you fear that he will not say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, the righteous can act as if they don't know what a foundation is. The righteous can say, well, you're a person, really. I mean, isn't that what the Bible's all about? I mean, doesn't it say in Christ there's neither slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Greek, you know, male nor female. They're, we're not men and women. We're, we're persons. And so when the foundations are destroyed, the righteous can just go along with it and act as if they don't see that the foundations are destroyed. You know, father walks into kitchen, end of the day. Mother there, bunch of little kids, right, screaming. It's got this pan burning. The buzzer's going off on the microwave. The water's running. The phone is ringing. The children are all screaming. Johnny's beating Susie with a pan. And the father comes in and says, what's for dinner? The foundations are being destroyed, and the father wants to know what's for dinner. He doesn't tell Johnny to put the pan down. He doesn't go over and take out of the microwave whatever is beeping. You know, he doesn't turn down the burner that 
is burning the beans. He doesn't go over and hug his wife. He doesn't say, shut up! <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is a general all-purpose kind of thing that you could do sometimes. <laughs> he says, what's for dinner? The foundations are being destroyed, and he says, what's for dinner? A man sees that there's a, another man that comes to their small group and seems to spend an inordinate of time, amount of time smiling seductively at his wife. And as a matter of fact, that man smiles seductively at him too and tells him constantly how much he looks up to him as a spiritual leader. And he sees that the man has eyes for his wife. The foundations are being destroyed. What does he do? Well, he relates to that man as a person. Because after all, he's, he's massaging your vanity, you know, and that does feel good. And it actually is kind of nice to have another man interested in your wife because it shows your good taste. And so he welcomes him into his home. And maybe that man's married and he begins to have picnics with that man and his wife and his children. And then he notices that man seems to be a little familiar in touching his wife. But he is perfectly, perfectly oblivious. Pretty soon, the entire town knows that that man, his wife, and the other man are committing adultery. And that they're, they're at the center of the church. They lead the church. They're the upstanding citizens in town. And everybody knows that the wife of one and the husband of the other, they're committing adultery. And that man is fleeing like a bird to the mountains. Because he doesn't really want emotional intimacy with his wife, and it really does help him for his wife to have somebody else to talk to. Because he works hard. He gets home. He doesn't want to have to deal with his wife. He doesn't want to have to service her emotionally. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Another man's a roommate of a man who's spending a lot of time at the apartment of his girlfriend. Guy comes home 2, 3 in the morning. He knows because he was up late working, writing a paper, right? He goes to bed, gets up the next morning, and amazingly, his roommate's home. They get up, and the foundations are being destroyed. What does the righteous do? He says, you know, hey, you want me to make you some coffee, dude? Not a word to him about how late he was out. Absolutely no love for his roommate. No fear of God. God knows. God sees. But we are perfectly oblivious. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Flee to the mountains like a bird. Women in our church know of a woman who does not have sex with her husband. Know that that husband is vulnerable to adultery because his wife will not have sex. And they're in Bible studies with her. They know her physical problems. They know that her husband is a cad. And they're perfectly oblivious. They never confront her about it. There never is graphic as the Apostle Paul in Scripture is about it. 
And sure enough, after a few years, the man turns out to have had a three-year adultous relationship when he's out on the road as a salesman. And everybody goes, oh, my, don't you feel sorry for poor Mrs. So-and-so? You want to know what I say? I say no. (laughs) Now, of course I do. I mean, you know, these are all true stories, right? You realize that, right? Right? I do feel sorry for her, but I also judge her because the Bible says we're not to withhold our bodies from our sexual mate. Why? So that they do not succumb to temptation sexually. That's why. Now, do you understand, when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And every single one of us in here knows that we say, what can the righteous do? (laughs) I just have to talk to you a few minutes, and I can find out where in your life you're saying, what can the righteous do? I mean, it's just me. Who am I? And all of a sudden, you're a woman. What can a woman do? You know, when it comes to victimhood, then all of a sudden our sexuality returns. <laughs> Come on, guys, laugh. It's funny. When it comes to football, all of a sudden our manhood returns. Get him! Get him! Come on, we should laugh at ourselves, right? Come on. Thank you. Thank you. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, I've, I've, what I've done is intentionally I've talked about this in the context of our own personal, um, our own personal lives and our own personal relationships. But the application that is weighing me down today is not us as mothers and fathers and husbands and wives. It's us as citizens of the United States of America because the foundations of our nation are destroyed. They're absolutely destroyed. They're not destroyed because the Republicans lost. I tell you this again and again. I don't give a rip, not one tiny rip about the Republican Party. None. It's fooled me so many times now that I'm an idiot. I'm not fooled. I I haven't been fooled for 25 years by the Republican Party. So forget the Republican Party. But we as a nation have taken a categorical leap a sea change in this election. And I could talk about Barack Obama, and I will later, but what I really want to point you to is the fact that his election is an indication that the church in America has said, when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Christians in America this year have given up the ghost. And What's really gone on this year is that Christians have decided that to fit in, we will not be salt and light, we will not repair the ruins, we will not restore the walls, we will not rebuild the foundations. And it's the result of the unfaithfulness of our shepherds. That's what's happened. We have been subject to such terrible care by our shepherds that we have lost the ability to discern. We have no ability to discern in the church today. And it's not just that we've lost our ability to discern between good and evil, but it's that we have actually adopted as a principle of our existence that discernment is evil and wicked and we will not give ourselves to it. You know, it's not just that we're not real good at it, but it's a skill that we value. It's that we hate discernment. We hate it. 
Because discernment divides. Discernment causes us to make distinction between righteous and unrighteous. And so when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is the counsel of the evangelical church in America today. And when you hear people talking generally, vaporously, mystically about a relationship with Jesus, and it has no doctrinal substance, none. It has no crunch. It has no edge, no crenellations, no nothing except a relationship with Jesus. Those are destroyed foundations, and that is the church saying, what can I do? What can I do? David, King David, it's not your job to clean things up. Flee like a bird to the mountains. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Think of Jesus on the cross, Luke 23. The people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanging there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You remember Job. God has afflicted him. Job 2, 7, Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a posture to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. And then his wife said to him, What? Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Often, this is the counsel that the evil one sends to us. And often it does come to us from our closest friends and from our loved ones, from Job's wife. Verse 4, here's the response to the counsel of despair. The response is, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is in his holy temple. What does that mean? That means that God is not bothered. He is not bothered. God is not fooled. God is not mocked. God is not shaken off his purpose in his court. God is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven, and his eyes behold and his eyelids test the sons of men. You can be tested by your father, and you'll, you'll pass that test almost always because dads aren't real good. You can be tested by your mother, and she'll usually get you right. She just won't have the will to do what your father will have the will. So what you really want is a mother that tests you and then tells the father what what the test results are, and then the Father decides on the punishment. That's, that's the best situation. But when God tests you, God sees absolutely to the very marrow of our bones. You see this all the time when you read Scripture, and Scripture cuts you like nothing, nothing ever has cut you. Your wife can't even conceive 
of speaking truth into your life the way Scripture does. God is like this. God's eyes are unerring. No confusion, no mist, no cataracts, no glaucoma, you know, no twisted retina. Nothing, nothing, nothing is wrong with the vision of God. Nothing. And the Bible tells us he's in his holy temple, his throne is in heaven, and his eyes behold and his eyelids test the sons of men. Isaiah 66, 1, this is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? His, he observes, his eyes examine. God has his gaze fixed on us and on all men, and nothing can hide from him. He pierces right to the deepest motives of our heart. He misses nothing. He knows every infinitesimal matter of our minds. Even down to the tiniest sorrow, the smallest daydream, the, the momentary, even down to our dreams, God understands us. The Lord tests, he examines the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Much as a fire tries and refines metal, the Lord tries and refines man. And then it tells us what he hates. God is not capable of doing anything but hating evil and wickedness. And it tells us in verse 5 that the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Now, here comes Obama. When you read a text like that, do you ever think, who loves violence? That's what you should think when you read the Bible. If the Bible tells you that God hates someone, you should always think, am I violent? Right? You should always think, is somebody else violent? If he... The Bible tells us the one who loves violence, his soul hates. We should say, am I violent? Do I love violence? Who loves violence? That's how we should read the Bible. We should always assume it's true. And that if God hates those who love violence, there are people who love violence, right? So who loves violence today? Now, this should be fairly easy for us to start on a personal existential level. Some of you play video games all the time. And I'm going to tell you, if you are given over to video games, you love violence. I'm not talking about Pac-Man. If your life is consumed with games where blood is on the walls incommoding the passers-by all the time. You know, I read a profile of the guy that designed this game where apparently there's like a chainsaw and you cut through. You know, and it's one of the most popular video games. And I guarantee there are men here who play that game. I don't know what the name of it is. I don't know the name of the guy that wrote it. I just read his profile. He's twisted. He's fully twisted. And you're giving over your life to that man. You're playing video games. You love violence. Okay? You love it. How about those of you that love to watch movies that are uh, horror flicks? You love violence. You know, I had a man in my church up in Wisconsin. We were surrounded by prisons, federal and state. Uh, the one where, uh, what's his face? Jeffrey Dahmer was just, this was a prison that this guy worked in over in Portage, the highest maximum security Wisconsin prison. And uh, <clears throat> this man... Um, worked 
I'll just tell you this about this man. What he lived for was hunting. Now, I'm not against hunting or, or guns at all. I think hunting is good. I think hunting is an exercise in faith. And the reason I believe that is that everyone that hunts is reminded that God has made animals to die to feed us. And I think it's good in our world today for all of us to eat meat. I think even those of you that are allergic to meat should occasionally eat it as a statement of faith. (laughs) To remind you, yeah, seriously, Latasha, just to remind yourself that you do this for your health. You don't do this because you're confused about the fact that man alone bears the image of God and that the rest of creation has been given to us by God as a good gift to feed us. No guilt. And so when you go out and kill the animal, it sort of short circuits this sterile and antiseptic relationship we have through a grocery store. You know, you actually see the splatter. You feel dress the deer, and it's not pretty. As Mike Bowles told my son when he said he was going to take him hunting, he said, you know, you're going to have blood up to here. And I think that every son in this church should have Mike Bowles initiate him to what really is at the center of our life when we eat, which is blood. The blood of an animal that God has made to give us food. So I'm not sentimental about animals. Not at all. I think it's an act of Christian faith. But the Bible says the one who loves violence his soul hates. And this man had bloodlust. This man took perverse delight in the suffering of creatures made in the image of God. You understand what I'm saying? He loved violence. And it was so clear to me that I actually told him that he had bloodlust and that it was evil and that he needed to repent of it. Can you imagine how somebody who works with knives with the most violent inmates in the state of Wisconsin could have bloodlust? Can you understand how that that would be a natural temptation of somebody in such a horrible environment? So don't look down on him. He probably was working out with the animals what he wished he could do to some of the men he worked with. And that's not a wrong thing. There is something right about the civil authority wanting to use the sword to protect the innocent. So, you're going to be with me on video games because you're a woman, right? And you think it's corrupt. You're going to be with me when it comes to, like, gothic movies and the whole black, you know, the whole you know, vampire thing, right? Because you're a man or because you're old or because... And you're going to be with me about hunting because you think people that hunt are wicked anyhow. But you know where I'm going, right? Our whole nation, the whole Western world is built on the bloodshed of innocent little babies that are made in the image of God. You understand this. I was thinking today... How do I make this clear to you? How do I make it clear what abortion is? I was thinking, I wish I could bring the victim to you. I wish I could have right here a little baby that is flushed down the sewer system over there at Planned Parenthood, right by the Wendy's where you eat meat. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Wendy's right by the Kroger. You know, right kitty corner, just a couple doors down is where they kill the babies. About a quarter of the ones that are conceived in our community are killed. Okay? I wish I could have one of the little bodies and show you the head and show you the arm, show you the leg, show you the the umbilical cord, show you this human being made in the image of God. 
But the problem with abortion is that the victims have never appeared. Never, they never appear. They're not like Jews who generation after generation show you pictures of the emaciated men who are liberated by the Allies' troops. You know, there's no relative at your family reunions that has their concentration camp number on the arm. You know, there's nobody that's left to tell the story. It's not your uncle who talks about seeing Treblinka when he shows up. These little ones never, ever speak. They are voiceless, right? And the Western world, and increasingly the Southern Hemisphere also, is built on the bloodshed of these little ones. Our careers, our wealth, our convenience, our reputation as upstanding people was built on the fact that when we were a young girl, we killed our child rather than admit that we had been fornicating. Or when we were in midlife and we were done with having children and another one was sent as a blessing from God, we killed God's blessing because we didn't want to have a Down syndrome child and because we'd just gone back to work and because we weren't too sure about our marriage. That's what the Western world is built on. How much is it built on it? It's built now to the tune of one billion unborn children slaughtered. One billion. That's the number, people. A billion That's how many the scholars estimate have now been killed. It's not actually a billion. It's 954 million. At the end of this year, it'll be a billion. And so we have elected a man who is the most pro-abortion, the most pro-infanticide. That's when you kill a baby that is born. Politician Washington has ever seen. Now, I have a problem with that because I know the God who says that he hates men who love violence. And my problem with it isn't that Barack Obama is prepared to say that if his girls get pregnant, that he'll help them to have an abortion. Because there are fathers like that. My problem is that our nation has put him into the position of the defender of justice and truth. That our nation has said, here is the sword of the civil authority that you are to use to protect the innocent and the defenseless. And I really don't have a problem with Barack Obama and his daughters. I just think it's tragic, and I wish I could sit down and talk with him, because I actually think I could convince him that he shouldn't do that with his daughters. I think the problem would come when I convince him that he shouldn't allow other people to do it to their daughters. Do you understand this? In his own home, he embraces bloodshed. As a leader, he embraces bloodshed. Even that I don't have as much problem with is the fact that our nation has said, here's the sword. You be the defender of the innocent. You be the protector of the defenseless. You be the one who stands in the place of God as our authority. And I really don't have as much of a problem with that as I have with the fact that it is the church of Jesus Christ in America that has given him the sword. That it is Christians who have said, this man is the voice of God. Now, nobody's said, Barack Obama is the voice of God. What they've all said is, Barack Obama will really stop abortions, and and Barack Obama really is on the side of the unborn children. And Barack Obama is really a man who 
will lead us into a place where we have new thoughts and where the innocence of our nation can be restored after that bloodthirsty man Bush. I mean, we all know that's what everybody's saying. And they're saying it in the name of Jesus Christ. What's really going on in America today is that the church has not only lost discernment but hates it. And the church is arguing in favor of having a national leader who is calling everything good evil and everything evil good. And the church is completely on board. Because I don't really believe that the government leads the church. I believe the church always leads the government. If the church reformed the Roman Empire, it should be chicken play for the church to reform the United States of America. But the church isn't doing it because... When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Let's flee like birds to the mountains. And so what really matters today to the church is that we fit in and go along to get along and not make a stink. And what really has happened is the church has listened to the counsel of despair and the church has given in. The church doesn't want to admit it's given in, so it has high-sounding reasons for why it's done what it's done. But we all know that evangelicals in America have given in and have now become a part of the, those who love violence. That's who we are. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says that God sees us, that we're his footstool, that he sits on his throne in heaven, and his eyes are unerring. He sees perfectly. And the Bible tells us, that the Lord examines the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. And then verse 6, it says, Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. And so what we have in America today is we have a country that's built on the bloodshed of our children who are inconvenient. Don't make the mistake of thinking that children are killed because of rape and incest. Almost no woman ever, ever, ever gets pregnant from rape. And I won't explain to you why that is. Just Google it and you'll find out why. It's disgusting. The children are sacrificed for our inconvenience so that we will have more convenience and so we'll have more money. That's why we kill our children. And pretty soon we'll kill our parents because we're going to have the baby boomers sick and we can't afford them. And this is what it means to love bloodshed. And if you can't see that our nation loves bloodshed, there is never any time in history when you would have seen anybody love bloodshed. And what does the Bible tell us God will do with it? The Bible tells us that upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cups. So this is an allusion to what? Come on, speak it. Sodom and Gomorrah. Raining brimstone. And there we have a place that was given over to men lying with men and women lying with women. Do you see that? Would you think that that had an application to the United States of America? Does it mean anything to you that male homosexuality loves sadomasochism? Does that tell you anything or is it just a lifestyle? 
Do you understand that somehow a nation that loves bloodshed has become a nation where people given to sexual immorality in order to get a rush have to go back into bloodshed? Or it's a fantasy, but the fantasy is what? Bloodshed. Do you understand this? It's like a perfect storm. This is our nation. And our new president is the most pro-abortion politician ever to hit Washington. Everybody agrees with this. Everybody except Christians. And he's a man who supports the ability of those given over to sleeping with their own sex being able to be married. This is who we've elected. Now, I'm not telling you this to berate you for electing him. I'm telling you this so that you understand that the foundations are destroyed. Don't fool yourself. We don't live in a nice time. This is not nice. This is the world you live in. This is the world that your children are born into. This is the world that World Magazine accounts. This is us. And we've chosen a leader who's a perfect manifestation of the evangelical church. The evangelical church is given over to bloodshed and is given over to violence. The evangelical church goes around saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And God is in heaven and his eyes perfectly see us. And he says that he will rain fire and brimstone on those who love violence and on the wicked. Verse 7, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. That's our God. The man that says that he just wants a personal relationship with Jesus, is that his God? Is that his God? Is his God the God that rains brimstone and fire from heaven on those who love violence? Is that his God? Listen, people, true faith is always divisive. Because Jesus says he came not for peace, but to bring a sword. And if you watch Jesus' life, it was like a locomotive going through a herd of buffalo. (laughs) And no buffalo ended up in front of the locomotive. It ended up on the right side or the left. And the engine just keeps going. And this is God. And what we find out is throughout all eternity, there will be a whole pile of buffalo on one side and a whole pile of buffalo on the other. There won't be any buffalo in front of God. It's going to be perfect division based on unerring judgment of the secrets of our hearts. And if you hate judgment, if you hate God's hatred for violence, if you hate making a distinction between those who love peace and those who love violence, if you hate making a distinction between those who give themselves to sexual purity and those who give themselves to being predators on other human beings sexually, if you can't see any of these distinctions and you think none of them apply today, you don't know God. You don't know God. 
You can talk all you want about a relationship with Jesus Christ, but you don't know Jesus Christ. You have no faith. Because the faith of the godly says, when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? God is in heaven! And we take comfort from that, not because we're vengeance people, not because we're, we feel so offended that other people have harmed us and have made fun of us. We don't care about that. We fear God. We don't fear men. We love it because we want to see the little ones able to worship their Father. We want to see fulfilled what Jesus said. If any of you lay a little hand on and are a stumbling block to these little ones, it would have been better that you would have been cast off a bridge with a millstone around your neck than you offend one of these little ones. And we remember that Jesus said their faces are always beholding the face of my heavenly Father. And we say, God, save the babies. I see that little one. I see his tears. I hear his cries. I feel his blood. God, save him! And we say, oh yeah, he said he hates those who love violence. He will judge them. And then we go to the women who run the abortuary, and we plead with them, flee from the wrath to come. And don't look back. And one of them looks back, and she gets turned into a pillar of salt. We say, God, that wasn't sensitive of you. We say, no, God, your judgments are right and true. All men are liars. Every judgment of God is true. God, save me. My heart's tugged towards abortion, tugged towards lust, tugged towards every evil thing. God, save me. Cover me with Jesus' righteousness. And that's the gospel. The gospel doesn't... Know no evil so that it can know all good. The gospel knows evil so that it can flee from the evil to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Has no delusions that it's its own righteousness that will save it. Knows that it's only the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do you understand this? And then it delights in God bringing justice. And it's unbelievably surprised that it escapes judgment itself. This is true Christian faith. True Christian faith does not deny the division of the herd. True Christian faith does not deny that there are those who love violence. True Christian faith doesn't deny what America is today. It doesn't deny who Barack Obama is. It doesn't deny why the emergent church supported Obama, because it knows what the emergent church is. True Christian faith cultivates the ability to see the dividing lines as its heavenly Father sees the dividing lines. Because true Christian faith cares more about the approval of God than it does the approval of man. Okay? This is true. What I say is true. And then true Christian faith is filled with love and grace and mercy for those who love violence. Because today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Now is the day of repentance. Now is the day. God has withheld his judgment because of his kindness leading us to repentance. You know, I want us to end. um, Oh, I don't know if I have the faith to do it, but I think I do. Would the band come up? Um, We were going to do 
a song that isn't appropriate given the sermon. But I want to tell you about, you know, I often use my family as illustrations, and usually they're not good. But I want to use my daughter Hannah as an illustration, a good one. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You either run or you stand. And Hannah just told me this little story at the dinner table the other night um, about how she was in, and I'll get some of the details wrong, but about how she's in this like class on textiles and design or something, right? Yeah. And so the professor showed this movie called uh, Paris is Burning. Know the movie? Come on. Nobody knows the movie. I see that hand. <laughs> Come on, more of you know that movie. What is it? It's, it's a transvestite movie, right? Um, it's about, you know, men that dress up like women, right? And that's basically, huh? Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm with you. I don't know what that movie is. I've never heard of it, you know? I won't have Hannah give you the plot. I'll just tell you that fairly early in the movie, there's full frontal nudity. And this is our tax dollars at work. And Hannah's sitting there thinking, did I just see what I thought I saw? And then again, full frontal nudity. So what does Hannah do? She walks out. So then a week or two later, there's a meeting with the professor, and she walks in the professor's office And the professor says something like, uh, well, why would you like to talk to me? And Hannah says, no, actually, I think you wanted to talk to me. So they got talking, and the professor wants to know how Hannah, you know, reacted, what her objections are. And Hannah says, well, that movie with that nudity should not be shown. And what does the professor say? Can you guess? I just love this statement. You want to get steam coming out of my ears, ever say this to me. I'm sorry you feel that way. So guess what Hannah says? Hannah says, I'm not telling you anything about how I feel. I'm telling you, it shouldn't be done. (laughs) Now that woman has... (laughs) And I found myself wishing every man in this church could hear her tell that story and be shamed. Because our women shouldn't have to do that. Because we as men should do it. And that's the beginning of seeing God's righteousness and fearing Him and then bringing everywhere we go faith instead of unbelief. And instead of fleeing like a bird to the mountains, we go into the professor and say that shouldn't be done. And when she says, I'm sorry you feel that way, we say, I didn't say anything about my feelings. I said, that shouldn't be done. And that's Christian faith. Not that we're going around making a name for ourselves being obnoxious. If you know Hannah, you know the professor probably loved her more when she walked out of the office than when she walked in. But that professor was rebuked, and that was an act of Christian faith. And that's what we need in America today. And if we do that, our country will repent. All God needs is for us to give ourselves to what he's called us to do, which is to make disciples of all nations, not people with personal relationships with Jesus. I'm not against a personal relationship with Jesus. But you know how you know it exists is because you go into the professor and say that ought not to be done. 
And if instead you just want your grade, how do you know Jesus? Give me the proof. If you're fleeing like a bird to the mountains every day of your life, and if nobody ever feels offended at your presence doing anything, how, what, what is your profession of faith? You know? Now, don't worry. Some of you are timid, and God made you that way, and God bless you. I'll give you a bye. And some of you are, 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 are mute. And I'll give you a bye. And some of you are old and they wouldn't listen to you anyway, and I'll give you a bye. And some of you are too young and it would be disrespectful. I'll give you a bye. And some of you are women. It's not really a woman's place. I'll give you a bye. And some of you have very important position in the community. If you were to speak up, think of what people would think of you, and I'll give you a bye. And some of you are just on the edge of tenure, and I'll give you a bye. And some of you need your committee to approve your dissertation subject. I'll give you a bye. And some of you have parents that wouldn't understand, and I'll give you a bye. So, are there any of you that are prepared to stand instead of running? Do you have faith in God? Do you love his judgment? Not do you love his mercy? I just take that for granted. Do you love his judgment?